Hi, this is Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Ann Hill, and today I am speaking with Deirdre Barrett. Deirdre is on the faculty of Harvard Medical School. She is the author of several books on dreams, author of uh, The Committee of Sleep, and also uh, co-editor of uh, an amazing new uh, two-volume set called The Encyclopedia of Sleep and Dreams. And she's also edited a collection uh, about 15 years ago on trauma and dreams. So uh, there's a lot to talk about. But Deirdre, first, welcome to Dream Talk Radio. Hi, nice to be here. I'm I'm really glad we could uh, find a time for this conversation. You are somebody who I've been uh, looking forward to talking with for quite a while. So I guess let's get down into it now. Unfortunately, I can't show everybody this this big encyclopedia, but it did. It just came out last year, and it's um, two volumes. Hard, I have the hardback edition, and it it is an impressive scope of work. And I'm wondering if you can tell people about it. So so I mean, there's topics in here from everything. Um, from sleep and renal failure to, you know, sleep and brain growth to childhood dreams to evolutionary dreams. I mean, it sort of covers personal dream habits and exploration and social and then a lot of scientific and interpretive topics as well as ancient history and and current cultural practices. And so first, I'd love to ask you how this this book project came about. Well, I have to confess, it's the only one of my books that I didn't really set out to do and plan. Um, Patrick McNamara and I had co-edited another book, which is called The New Science of Dreaming, a few years before this. And on that one, we had you know, we gotten the idea, we planned it out the way we wanted. But then a a subpart of the same press produces encyclopedias on specialized topics. And so I think because of the new science of dreaming, they thought of us when mm-hmm. they wanted to do a sleep and dreams encyclopedia. So it had really never crossed my mind to do an encyclopedia format uh book like this, uh, nor nor had that been Patrick's idea, but when they approached us about it, we discussed it and, and thought it sounded like a really interesting project uh, and agreed to do it. So, so the format is is less ours, but uh, but I I ended up liking the idea very much of, uh, of just a very specialized but encyclopedia style book. Yeah, and it is it, what I love about this. I mean, among other things, uh, each of the articles, for instance, sleep apnea in heart failure, or uh, sleep in children with cancer, or sleep uh, working with dream images. These are all articles that um, I would say are written at a at somewhere you know high school, freshman, and college level. So they're they're fairly accessible. They're fairly short. But they have a lot of, they have references uh, at the end, so if people really wanted to dive in, uh, they can. But meanwhile, I feel like they, uh, each of them covers the topic in a little, in, in uh, greater depth than, say, uh, you know, a dummy's guide or something like that. I mean, there's, there's real scholarship, and you've gotten some 
big some big names in a lot of different fields was how was that process of finding and um, eliciting uh, contributions from people well i mean it was it was very fun to to think up what all of the different potential topics were and and contact many more people than than we would for any other kind of edited book. So kind of the, the generating it part was a lot of fun. On the other hand, it was kind of a nightmare to follow up on. I mean, yeah. Even if you do a, you know, a sort of 12-person edited book, you always end up with some sort of school teacher chasing down the last tardy chapters mm-hmm. and, you know, and that sort of thing. And with a cast of, of you know, hundreds, it really becomes more of a more of a task um, but but lots of the process was fun and and it was great to get to include just everyone whose work I admire mm-hmm. in any other sort of edited book where you have 10 or 12 or at most 14 chapters you really have to make some hard decisions and who to include and not and always end up leaving out some things that you know would be interesting and relevant but for the encyclopedia we really got to invite just everyone whose work we liked and then especially for the parts that were sleep not involved with dreams we really had to hunt down who some of the appropriate people Mm -hmm. were because Patrick and I both specialize more in dreams we've both taught courses on on sleep and you know and know that area sort of as a professor would, but, but not, not as our own research areas. So I, I'd say the book ends up being probably a larger emphasis on dreams for sleep and dreams than if some other sort of sleep research professional had ended up doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's lots of dreams and some of everything else about sleep. Well, I think that's the strength of it too. Um, for instance, I was just reading the um, a, a part, a portion on PTSD and nightmares. Uh, the I was comparing your your earlier work, uh, the edited um, volume on trauma and dreams, with some of the stuff that that this encyclopedia uh, included in, and. I, I noted where, I can't remember, um, maybe I think it was Joanna King wrote an article for the encyclopedia about PTSD and nightmares and mentioned that in most studies of PTSD, nightmares are shown as a symptom and recovery, uh, one of the, the, the bullet points of recovery is when you start to have a decrease in the, the frequency of nightmares. But she makes the point that there's no actual body of work in most volumes on how to work with those nightmares. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, that that was a major motivation when I did the other book, Trauma and Dreams, mm-hmm. uh, which which came out significantly before the encyclopedia. At that time, there was really nothing that brought the two together. I would. I would hear these really good talks at both the trauma society meetings and and the International Association for the Study of Dreams, and it seemed like the trauma people weren't, they were more aware of that tracking it as a symptom Mm -hmm. idea. They certainly talked about PTSD nightmares, 
Uh, but it was the dream group that tended to use dream work as an actual treatment. And that there was, there was very good work going on in both those circles and that they weren't terribly aware of each other. And a lot of what I was impressed with, I'd only heard of as talks at meetings. So mm -hmm. that's, that's why I decided to mm -hmm. do that book. And that book was much more one I felt called to do. And the yeah. encyclopedia was more like the, the press said, we have this format for right. specialized encyclopedias. Would you guys like to do one on sleep and dreams? And we thought about it and said yes. But but the trauma and dreams, I really felt a, a kind of a very specific need for there to be a book like that. And and why is that? What was your, why did you feel called to this specific topic? Because of what I said about the the dream people and the trauma people being mm -hmm. kind of separated in terms of what conferences they attended and what mm -hmm. journals they read, yeah. so that they, they weren't being made aware of each other's work, and I thought this was a book that would be purchased and read about equally by both groups, mm -hmm. so they would, they would get more of, of what each other um, have, have been doing, and I, I think certainly that collaboration has proliferated yeah. you know, a lot since, since then. Yeah, I mean, the reason I ask, in fact, is to your point, I, I feel personally that um, one of our greatest challenges as a, as a civilization right now is the impact of PTSD on individuals, on families, and on society, and I... I feel as you do that that the dream piece, working with the nightmares of trauma victims, no matter what, no matter whether it's uh, you know veterans or uh, people who suffered some injury or or, or attack or illness, um, that that really needs to be attended to, and that's one of the the places where the body of knowledge that dream workers and dream researchers have. Uh, can have a strong impact, and I'd I'd love for for our view, our listeners who really haven't thought about that connection. I'd love it if you could just sort of give a summary of the connection there and why focusing on dreams and the content of dreams is so important. Well, a, a recurring theme that came up in many of the chapters in Trauma and Dreams, whether they were writing about. Uh, traumatized children or rape victims or war combat sorts of, of trauma was that that these nightmares that sometimes just very realistically reenact a real trauma but more commonly have a certain amount of dreamlike distortion of it or they go one step further, something horrible that was just feared is about to happen in waking life actually happens in the dream. So sometimes they're just just the real traumatic event, but usually they're sort of a distorted and or even worse version of it. That, that people who've had a trauma very often have these dreams over and over, and the effect is just to re-traumatize them. It's like ha having the, the rape or the fire or the gun battle, you know, happening again night after night. So those, those happen often starting really soon after the trauma. And then the natural course, if somebody is, is recovering psychologically from the trauma, is that they become less frequent 
they become milder, and sometimes people have a, what we sometimes call a mastery dream, where it starts like the nightmare, but then, unlike the way the nightmare's been going, and unlike the real-life situation, something happens to correct it. They manage to escape from someone, someone comes to their defense when they're being abused as a child in a way that they should have but didn't really in, in the waking life events. Um, and that it, or sometimes it's a much more magical, dreamlike sort of, of way that the situation gets corrected. And a lot of people in recovering from trauma naturally have one of, one of these mm -hmm. dreams. And, and so lots of us had observed that in the course of, of doing psychotherapy. Almost all simultaneously, separately, were having the thought that, gee, maybe this process can be you know, enhanced or speeded up or shared by, by more of the trauma victims and begun to instigate different ways of coaching people. First of all, simply telling them that, that many trauma survivors eventually have a mastery dream, mm -hmm. but also of coming up with ways to, you know, ask them if they had a scenario they'd like the dream to take and beginning to use occasionally hypnotherapy, but more commonly just some of the already established dream incubation techniques that, mm -hmm. that we use for other purposes to influence dreams, mm -hmm. and, and coaching people to more actively try to have one of these mastery dreams. And so there are a number of chapters in Trauma and Dreams that describe variations on that concept that people had come up with in doing you know, fairly different work with differing sets of trauma populations and now now that's become very much the the common approach and I think most people working with trauma have some awareness of that but that wasn't true at, at mm -hmm. the time that I was pulling these collection together so you you think it, uh, you're referring specifically to the psychotherapeutic uh, response to trauma in dreams or are you are you talking more broadly about, oh, I don't know, say victims' assistance or the VA or various organizations who look at trauma um, survivors? Um, in, in Trauma and Dreams, we were all talking about doing it in a psychotherapy mm -hmm. setting. Yeah. Most of us worked one-on-one, -on -one, but, uh, but there's, there's a chapter on survivors of rape that that talks some about what can be done in yeah. group group therapy format, but we were all sort of thinking therapy. Mm -hmm. But definitely, it's um, it, it's been found since then that first of all, sometimes just reading about mastery dreams is enough to cause someone to have one, even without sort of intentionally going through these techniques. Just the concept that. Sometimes a trauma victim stops having the repetitive nightmare and, mm -hmm. and has a different satisfying outcome to the same dream. Mm -hmm. I've definitely encountered people who simply read an article about this or they went to a 
peer support group for trauma survivors and somebody was telling a mastery dream story. Mm. So, so just hearing about it increases the, the natural rate of it. But definitely people can try this in a sort of self, self-help version on their own. Mm-hmm. And then one person has developed this a lot who was not one of the chapter authors of my book, but after reading this book, Barry Krakow pulled right. together a, a sort of a short version of coaching on this sort of dream which he really casts in an almost more psychoeducational than therapy way, and he's he's an emergency room physician rather mm-hmm. than uh, a psychiatrist. Right. So, you know, uh, you're, I think you're blocking your mic. Sorry, um, you were saying something about you were saying something about Barry Krakow being an emergency room physician. Yeah, so he doesn't use terms like psychotherapy and uh-huh. he was he was doing coaching on these sorts of dreams in uh, just a three session format where you know a fairly large number of rape survivors would come together and be sort of told some of this information they, there'd be some group interaction but but mainly a psychoeducational yeah. uh, very short group format um, in which he had had a good degree of success with this, so it hmm. it, it was very standardized for mm-hmm. for his research. So it's it's definitely getting pretty well known among trauma workers in in a way that it it wasn't in 1998 when that book came out. That is really heartening to hear, and um, I have this uh, I have a question for you, which is. Imagine because this happens if I'm if I'm standing next to somebody and I mention that I work with dreams instantly I start to hear about last night's dream or the recurring dream. If you were in the line at a grocery store and the woman or man next to you knew that you you had information and and uh, you had done research on trauma and dreams and they started to tell you. A, tra- a, a dream that stems from a trauma that they've experienced. What would be yeah, I mean, you know, 30 seconds to a minute. And, like, what would you tell them to do? What was the first thing that you would tell a survivor of severe trauma to do with their dreams? Um, just, just the concept that you can learn to change them. Lots of people think that they'd simply like to wake up, you know, how, how would you like the nightmare to change? Well, I'd just like to wake up if it starts, is, is what a lot of people say. Right. And, you, and you can train people to wake up from them, but I generally really encourage people to seriously think about the mastery dream, because it seems, it seems to have a positive carryover in a way that goes beyond simply not having the bad dream, the way the bad dream has re-traumatized you. The mastery dream makes you wake up feeling more in control and more like the trauma is behind you. Mm-hmm. So I would tell them to think about some alternative ending as as literal or as fanciful and dreamlike as they might want it to be. And I think it's important that people arrive at their own. Some people want to fight off an attacker. Some people want to be rescued. Some people want to shrink them down to the size of a mouse. Um, 
for many victims of child abuse, it feels more important to get a chance to tell the victimizer what was so wrong with what they did as opposed to to any other sort of, of change mm-hmm. in the drinking. So, so anyway, I would tell people to, to think of a satisfying alternative ending and then as they're falling asleep at night to remind themselves of this other narrative and tell themselves that if the dream occurs that it will take this other outcome. And, and that, is, that is just a really simple way that many people can do this on their own. However, depending on the level of post-traumatic stress the person has, many people would benefit more from working with another clinician or going to some sort of groups for people with PTSD. Right, right. Um, thank you for that. I think that's, that's tremendously helpful, and, and I think it will help people who are listening to this conversation, in fact. Um, following up on the mastery dream idea, I love that. I love the name. I never actually heard the term coined before, so thanks for that. And it seems like that, it, that kind of dream and also your comment about imagining a different ending is a pretty good segue into the whole topic of creativity and problem solving in dreams. So maybe you can tell listeners a little bit about your book, The Committee of Sleep, and some of the ideas behind that. Yeah, that, that book is, is on the topic, the, the kinds of dreams that inspire artists or scientists who discover a chemical formula or invent a device in a dream. I certainly think that more of our dreams are about our personal and emotional problems, but it's so striking that sometimes people have these professional breakthrough dreams. So that's what I focused on in the Committee of Sleep. And again, just like with the trauma things, I looked at both just the natural occurrence of these and, and really many of the most famous examples are to occur to someone who wasn't at all expecting their dream to solve their problem, who maybe didn't even pay that much attention to their dreams until one just popped out and, you know, grabbed them and said the answer. Uh, But then I I also have used similar incubation techniques in experiments to see how much we can increase the rate of problem-solving dreams. And I've done things like having students either pick an objective problem that they're really already working on and haven't solved or to take brain teasers, you know, where I know the answer and they don't yet. Um, And in either case to look over the problem at night as they're falling asleep, just look at it for a minute or two and then then as they're drifting off to sleep, tell themselves, I want to dream a solution to... X. I mean, sometimes it's a problem, sometimes it's a question mm-hmm. they're asking for an answer to. And, and I found that that greatly increases the rate of these problem-solving dreams. The same way dream incubation greatly increases the rate of mastery dreams, which certainly can happen spontaneously. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in both cases, there is the emphasis, you would say, on on right before sleep, sort of giving our unconscious, our dreaming mind, a prompt. If I if I have this traumatic dream again, this is how it, I want to end it. This is how I want it to resolve, 
And if I have a problem that I'm, I'm thinking about, I bring it to the forefront of my mind before I drift off to sleep with the notion that I can have a dream that, that offers the solution to this problem. Is that generally the gist of it? Yes, they're, they're both taking, taking advantage of self-suggestion being especially powerful in that falling asleep hypnagogic mm -hmm. state, that being sort of as close as you're going to get to the time the dream is occurring. Uh, but in the case of the mastery dream, you're really trying to give it something very specific that you've already figured it out. Problem-solving one, you haven't figured it out, you're just you know, trying to ask it for this topic. Right. And I love the, the title, The Committee of Sleep. Um, can you explain to listeners what the, who's on the committee? What's the committee of sleep? Well, it comes from, there's a John Steinbeck quote I really love where he says, whenever a problem is too difficult by day, I give it to the committee of sleep, and in the morning the answer is there. Nice. And I'm not even sure that he was specifically referring to dreams. I mean, there, there are other ways sleep helps us problem solve. Right. But I just thought the phrase, the committee of sleep, was so appropriate to how I conceptualize dreams. Mm -hmm. that I, don't, I don't think of the unconscious in general or our dreaming mind as just one unitary thing, the way Freud thought it was a kind of a petty, childlike, strong, you know, instinctual impulse, and Jung writes about it much more as, as kind of transcendent and these archetypal um, ways of thinking that we're not usually in touch with. And, and I think really the, the unconscious is kind of literally everything we're not consciously focusing on that, that mm -hmm. our mind potentially can do. And that at night in our dreams, that all of these elements, like petty, childlike thoughts, selfish, evil ways of thinking, transcendent, wise things that we might not get to awake, just all kinds of parts of ourselves. Um, that phrase, the back burner, yes. that people use when they're not consciously working on things, that, that whatever part of our mind is the back burner pops into the foreground, sometimes in dreams. So I just like the idea of the committee, that it's just like a group of very disparate parts of ourselves. I think that's right, and I think that's a really uh, wonderful image to offer to people, because I, you know, I do think that the general public knows a lot about certain pieces of uh, psychological and psychoanalytic thinking and theory, but the what the unconscious is is um, well, it's sort of a black box or a blank slate. You know, I, I think we're we're kind of confused, and I the the idea of having a committee of of largely allies of essentially ourselves. I mean, whether they are sort of contentious parts of ourselves or very you know bright precocious parts, it, it's. It's a useful way to think about what is going on in our unconscious and what that encompasses. Yes. So, anyway, these these three books we've been talking about, I, I think of as for very different purposes. Like, mm -hmm. I wrote The Committee of Sleep 
very much for the average general reader interested in dreams. And obviously the focus is mainly on this creativity. A lot of it is just interesting stories about historical examples of this, but mm -hmm. also a big emphasis on how to do it yourself. Yeah. And, and, and I really see that one as sort of for anyone. Trauma and dreams um, is, is probably more for clinicians and people working with post-traumatic dreams, but it's something that some trauma survivors who want a lot of detail and are somewhat used to reading the psychological literature find interesting. Yeah. And the encyclopedia is definitely conceptualized as a library reference book. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I know there are some individuals who are passionate about everything about sleep and dreams who bought it themselves, but it's, uh, it's an expensive volume for one thing, yeah. but also it's so broad that many people would be fascinated by one topic and bored to tears by, by mm -hmm. another. So I think it's intended for someone to walk into a library and look up one to three entries at a time, yeah. whereas I think anyone that it would be interested in one chapter of Trauma and Dreams would be interested in all of it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it just attests to your scope as a researcher and writer that you've managed to pull off three, uh, three and more, we should say, projects uh, of very different scope and different intended audiences. And, uh, you know, I just want to uh, personally thank you for everything that you've added to my understanding of dreams, and may it continue. And uh, if I, I guess uh, in closing, I don't want to keep you on, on this call for too long. Any final things? What are you thinking about most recently or what are you exploring about dreams at the present? Uh, actually, I'm working more on the committee of sleep type, type topics. Mm -hmm. I've, I've done one study on dreams and creativity since that. I'll probably write another book on that eventually and one thing that happens is when you write a book on something then you hear from all these people that have really relevant information and anecdotes and all about it so while I was writing the committee of sleep I was chasing down well-known scientists and authors and all you know who I heard some rumor, you know, had dreamed their invention or their novel mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, and I got, I got, I got interviews with some of my wish list and, and others not. But then when the book came out, I had scientists writing me long letters from Bell Labs about, you know, an invention they'd seen in their dreams, Amy Tan walking up to me at a meeting saying, oh, I've got to tell you about the parts of my books that I dreamed. And so, so it just generates all this additional, you know, information on a topic that I'm still very interested in. Wow. That needs to be its own radio show. <laughs> <laughs> I say very greedily thinking about all the fascinating conversations. Yes, yes, we can do this again. Sometime. Absolutely. Well, Deirdre Barrett, it's been such a pleasure talking with you. Thanks so much uh, for your for your time and for your work. Okay, nice to do this. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.